Hello, I'm CM Conway, the filmmaker of the witty and poignant indie, How to Successfully Fail in Hollywood, now on Prime Video, and FunnyFailureFilm.com. On this now monthly podcast, we celebrate funny flubs, bodacious blunders, and miraculous missteps that happen to us as artists. So hone your funny bone and let's get started. Hello, hello, and welcome to our show. This podcast is inspired by our witty, poignant, and big-hearted indie, How to Successfully Fail in Hollywood, a timeless tale about friendship and two friends who are also actors in the industry trying to make it against all odds while honing their courage themselves and navigating truth, fantasy, and identity in outrageous Tinseltown. Can you relate? The inspiring film is inspired by my own story and years in Los Angeles. It first was a book, and then it became a screenplay, and then it became the little indie that could. The film shows how to flip failure in creative and interesting ways to embrace your bodacious blunders as part of the creative process, while honing your sense of humor along the way. And that's what we do on this show. So if you've had a mishap that's happened in your creative journey and you would like to share it on the show, please visit funnyfailurefilm.com and click on share your story. Today's story is from the book The Seven Stairs by Stuart Brent. This book was published in 1962 and is filled with interesting stories and anecdotes. It's an autobiography of Stuart Brent, who in 1946 followed his bliss and opened an independent bookstore in Chicago. It became very popular and highly regarded, and he ended up starting a weekly TV show in which he reviewed books along with rubbing elbows with celebrities. This chapter is called Life in the Theater. It's performed by Phyllis Vincelli, and is a LibriVox recording in the public domain. It happened one summer, a few years ago, when Hope and I had come down from Bark Point to check on the shop. I was answering a pile of letters when the phone rang. It was a man I had met some time before, who turned out to be a business manager of a summer stock theater operating in a suburb northwest of Chicago. He wondered if I would like to play a lead opposite Linda Darnell in the Kaufman and Hart comedy The Royal Family. The role was that of a theatrical agent, Oscar Wolfe, who theoretically functioned as a sane balance to a family of zany, childish, totally mischievous grown-ups, roughly modeled on the Barrymore clan. Hope, who had grown up in Westchester society, admitted that when she was a girl attending summer theater, it had always been her secret wish to be part of it. She thought it might be good fun, even though I had never acted in my life. So the business manager came over, and I signed the contract, calling for a week of rehearsal and two weeks of performance. 
Summer theater around Chicago cannot be classified as an amateur undertaking, although part of its economics is based on utilizing large numbers of young people who want the training and generally avoiding the high costs involved in regular theatrical production. But top stars and personalities are booked, the shows are promoted to the public as professional offerings, and are reviewed as such by the theatrical critics, and the whole enterprise is regarded as essential to the vitality of a living theater. The outfit I signed up with was an established enterprise, and as a matter of fact, is still going. I was not entirely confident that I could deliver, but I had no doubt that I was associating myself with people who could. The theater itself was not a refashioned barn or circus tent setup, but an actual theater building, restored from previous incarnations as a movie and vaudeville house. I arrived on a lovely August morning, but inside the theater was in total darkness, except for some lights on the stage. I made my way timidly down front, where a number of people were sitting. Several nodded to me, and I nodded back. Presently, a tall man got up on the stage and announced that he was going to direct the play. He said, however, that Miss Darnell had not yet arrived, and also that there were not enough scripts to go around. We would begin with those who had their parts. For the next three days, I sat in the darkness from nine in the morning until five in the afternoon. No one asked me to read, no one asked me to rehearse, practically no one talked to me at all. I managed a few words with Miss Darnell, who was gracious and charming, but I was beginning to wonder when I would be asked to act. Hope had been working with me on my lines, but it is one thing to know lines sitting down, and quite another to remember them while trying to act and give them meaning before an audience. I began to suspect that something was haywire. A friend who taught drama at a nearby college and often took character roles in stock confirmed my fears by assuring me that this play would never get off the ground. It will never open, he said. We were to open on a Monday. It was already Friday, and I had been on stage exactly once, and nobody yet knew his part. I least of all. In addition to my fears, I was beginning to feel slighted. I wondered what I was doing in this dark, dank place, and what the rest thought they were doing, including the innumerable young men and women between 16 and 20 years of age, who were ostensibly developing their knowledge of the theater through odd jobs, such as wardrobe manager, program manager, etc., there didn't seem much to manage, and I wasn't sure it was really a very healthy environment. By this time, a fair number of the cast had taken to screaming, which is something I am not used to among grown-ups for any extended period. I also had my doubts about a young man who spent most of his off-stage moments sweet-talking a bulldog. 
I wondered if acting necessarily precluded any kind of emotional responsibility. Saturday night, the play preceding us closed. We rehearsed all that night. Sunday, the theater would be dark, and Monday, the royal family was to go on. The Saturday night rehearsal was initially delayed because one of the principals could not be found. Finally, he was located dead drunk in a local tavern. It was now almost 1 a.m., and not even a walkthrough with script in hand had yet been attempted. Instead, the company was engaged in a welter of screeching, shouting, confusion, and recriminations. This was sheer silly nonsense, I decided, and went to see the business manager. I told him I'd be pleased to quit and offered to pay double my salary to any experienced actor he could get to replace me. I was at once threatened with a lawsuit. At two in the morning, everyone was called on stage by the director, who made a little speech saying that he was just no longer able to direct the play, he couldn't pull it together. At this, Miss Darnell walked off the stage saying, This play will not open on Monday or Tuesday or ever unless something is done immediately. After all, she had a reputation to uphold. Thereupon, the director returned with a further announcement. It so happened, he said, that a brilliantly gifted young New York director was visiting here between important plays, and he had consented to pull the play together for us. Our gift of providence then stepped forward and we began to rehearse. When my cue came and I offered my lines, the new director said, The Oscar Wolf part is really just an afterthought. The show will play just as well without the wolf character appearing at all. Fine, I said, but pandemonium had already broken loose as the former director and some of the actors took issue with this new twist. We were already missing one actor, and now this new director wanted to sack me. Well, I had asked for it, but Miss Darnell and the others persuaded me to stick with it. The rehearsal continued. At 5 a.m., a halt was called, and the treasurer of the theater asked to say a few words. Under equity rules, he reminded us, we were entitled to overtime for extra rehearsal. He asked us to waive this for the sake of the play. I waited silently to see what the general reaction would be. It didn't take long to find out. Nothing doing, play or no play. I went along with them on that. What I couldn't understand was why they put up with all they did. The filthy little cubicles that served as dressing rooms, the rats and cockroaches that scudded across the floor, the lack of any backstage source of drinking water. The whole atmosphere seemed deliberately designed to make an actor's life completely insupportable. And now the management was sulking because the actors didn't have enough love for the theater to forego their pay for overtime. At 6 a.m., it was decided that rehearsal would resume at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. As we were about to leave, 
too tired to care any longer about anything, the director came up and said he was sure I must have misunderstood him. He would indeed be sorry if I left the show or if he had hurt my feelings. What he had really meant to say was that the Oscar Wolf part lends credence to the movement and meaning of the play. I was glad to leave it at that. The following afternoon, before evening rehearsals, Hope and I stopped at a drugstore a few steps from the theater. There we found Miss Darnell sitting in a booth sipping a Coke. She motioned us over. The play won't open Monday, she said. I've made my decision. We agreed wholeheartedly. This story is fascinating. That brings to life the experience of a bookstore owner becoming an actor in this play and all the craziness that ensued. The way he describes the experience looks like cold water just splashed in his face of the reality of this particular play. What makes this story unique is an outsider's look inside the theatrical experience. But what's interesting is that Stewart did go on to have a weekly television series where he reviewed books, so perhaps he got bitten by the performing bug. And his approach towards the whole experience seems to have the sensibility of a level-headed businessman thrown into the creative world. Although the first half of the chapter ended on a bit of a cliffhanger, I admired his ability to stick to his commitment and simply throw himself in unfamiliar waters. As artists, as people, those are great qualities to have if we want to accomplish anything worthwhile. We will continue the last half of this chapter, Life in the Theater, on next week's program. Stay tuned. Thank you for joining us in the How to Successfully Fail in Hollywood podcast. Copyright by Showstoppers and FunnyFailureFilm.com Intro and outro song, Twinkle Twinkle Little Star by David Mumford. Until next time, remember, mistakes makes art more interesting. <laughs>